On September 1, 1905, about 662,000 square kilometers of land was carved out of the Northwest Territory to create Canada's eighth province, Alberta. While almost one-half of all Albertans live in either the huge metropolis of Calgary, home of Barry's beloved Calgary Flames, or Edmonton, home of North America's largest shopping mall, the West Edmonton Mall, many Albertans feel a strong connection to the rural cowboy life, similar to what one thinks of when they think of the American West. In fact, one of the world's largest rodeos, the Calgary Stampede, is held there every July and attracts about one million visitors per year. This event is so ingrained in the culture that Calgary's nickname is Stampede City. Their CFL team is called the Stampeders, and the Newfoundland folk duo Simini, who famously, to Newfoundlanders anyway, penned the perennial Christmas song, The Mummer Song, wrote about how even if you took to traipsing about in your Calgary hat, you can always pick out a Newfoundlander by the lard dying in their song, Saltwater Cowboys. That song starts out, a Newfie's a Newfie wherever he goes. Speaking of culturally insensitive monikers, I noticed while verifying the name of Calgary CFL team that the Edmonton CFL team has changed its name from the Eskimos to the football team, just like their southern counterparts in Washington. Good on you, boys. Aside from the cowboys and gigantic shopping centers, Alberta has oil. Lots of oil. Its oil sands are the third largest oil reserve on Earth, and a huge part of that province's economy is driven either directly or indirectly from it. That has drawn people from all over the country and all over the world to Alberta, including many Newfoundlanders. A lot of them are rotational workers who permanently reside back home, but commute to Alberta for so many weeks on and so many weeks off. Others have permanently relocated. This could not be more prevalent in the city of Fort McMurray, a.k.a. Fort Mac, or Newfoundland's second biggest city, where about 17% of the city's population identify as being a Newfoundlander. Oil is not the only fossil-related treasure, though. The Albertosaurus is the only dinosaur named after a Canadian province. Its fossil was discovered in 1884, but was named in 1905 after the newly minted Canadian province where it was found. But aside from all the professional sports and cowboys and oil and displaced Newfoundlanders, Alberta has a rich folklore tradition and colorful history. In this episode of the Some Weird Podcast, we will look in between the cracks of the surface to shed some light on the bizarre parts of Alberta. What's that in there? I'm not sure what's going on, but I can tell you this for sure. It's Some Weird by... Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Some Weird Podcast, Season 2, The Great Weird North, Episode Number 10. I am your co-host, Barry. And I am your co-host, Chrissy. And in this episode of the Some Weird Podcast, obviously, we are talking about the province of Alberta. In your intro, you mentioned about the oil, and then the first thing that came to my mind that I always think when I hear that word is, do you remember the Codco skit? They're telling these stories about how the girl used to always tip over the oil and get all over her shirt. Yes. And the hoil went all over me shirt, all over her breastuses. <laughs> I do exactly remember that. I don't recall what the point of it was, but yes, Alberta is like synonymous in Canada anyway with oil. And synonymous here in, in our home province, Newfoundland Labrador, as a place that people have pilgrimaged to to get work mm -hmm. for, for quite a long period of time. 
Yeah. Do you know any people personally who have moved to Alberta? Yes, got yes. you, right? Tons. Yes, we have cousins that done it. Do we? We have so many cousins, I don't know where they are, where they're all to. We have cousins on both sides that have moved to Alberta. I got friends that are still there. Um, Fort McMurray, too, another very interesting happened very recently. They had the forest fires. Do you remember that? That happened, you know, in the last four or five years? No, I barely see any TV from or any news from Canada. Well, basically, uh, they had this crazy wild forest fire going in Alberta and it went right through Fort McMurray. And, like, oh, it was like the biggest mass evacuation in Canadian history. Like, oh, wow. There's videos driving where people are just driving down the road and, like, the robe is on fire. It was it was amazing that very few people, if anybody died from this, it was uh, a sight to be seen. A couple of things about Alberta that uh, I, I'd like to discuss, if you have a moment. Go for it. All right. The first one is the town of Vulcan. There's a town in Alberta called Vulcan, Alberta. It is known as the official Star Trek capital of Canada. I always thought that this town was named after Vulcan because of Star Trek, but it's actually a coincidence. It was named after a surveyor who was working on the Canadian Pacific Railway. He named the town Vulcan after the Roman god of fire. Oh, okay. So the town eventually decided to capitalize on the coincidence of having the same name as Vulcan, the logic planet of Star Trek. And they're like tourism building, looks like a landed spaceship. And they have a uh, all kinds of attractions and an annual festival called Spock Days. Oh, nice. It attracts nice. fans from Star Trek all over the world, right? Sounds like uh, the town of Dildo, Newfoundland, followed that uh, business plan and got That's Jimmy right. Kimmel to be their mayor. Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel to be their mayor, and they have uh, the Dildo Festival. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a couple other things about Alberta in terms of famous people. Nickelback. Do you like Nickelback? I don't hate Nickelback. There's some reason everybody hates Nickelback. I don't understand that. Yeah, it's the band they love to hate, but I don't hate Nickelback, but they seem to... And I think, are they sort of into it? Like, not into being hated, but they're okay with the They play along with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. It's kind of turned into an internet meme where it's kind of like the Chuck Norris thing where it's just cool to... It's cool to hate them or something like that. They just kind of play right into it, right? So... Yeah, but I don't don't hate them. Do you? I mean, never done nothing to me. That's right. He did the Spider-Man song in one of the Spider-Man movies. Okay. There's all kinds of famous people from Alberta as well. I mean, I'm not going to get into all, you know, all the hockey players that were born in Alberta, for example. Mm-hmm. But number one is, of course, Mr. Michael J. Fox, Marty McFly, Alex yeah. P. Keaton. Yeah. Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. That's right. Great basketball player. Great. Uh, actually, he's not a great basketball player. We've discussed that in the past. Yeah, we did. How he was really shitty. <laughs> Suck shit out of you. Is it Parkinson's he has? Yes, he's got Parkinson's. And, he, you know, he's been uh, a spokesman for that for years, and I'm sure a lot of the money that's donated is attributed to him. Yeah. I like Michael J. Fox. Oh, I love Michael J. Fox. Yeah, I've liked him in everything. I used to love Family Ties. Is it, what was Buddy's name? Uh, Mallory's boyfriend's? The, the artist? Nick. Nick. Hey. Mallory. I remember more about Alex P. Keaton. He was, like, for sure the star of that show. Yeah, he's, like, the super Republican, and his parents are, like, hippies. I loved the Back to the Future movies. I mean, they're... We talked about this, too, where uh, John Mulaney was explaining how... <laughs> How somebody went and pitched that movie? Yeah. His best friend is a disgraced yeah. nuclear scientist. Yeah, I guess it, for, that doesn't make a lot of sense about how they're such close friends when their age gap is so high. And He's no either from... 40 or 80. We don't know. <laughs> 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 but for whatever reason, everybody put all that stuff aside and love those movies. And that movie's one of the greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. We can't. Not talk about Alberta without talking about the Hart family. The Hart Foundation. I know these people. 
the heart, well, not so much the heart foundation, but uh, Stu and Helen Hart. So Stu Hart is uh, synonymous with Calgary. He started a, a wrestling promotion up there called Stampede Wrestling. It was the biggest wrestling promotion in Canada for forever, from the 40s right on up until the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he had fathered, like, I don't know, bunch of kids um, that are all end up being wrestlers, uh, most famously Bret Hart and Owen Hart, but also Bruce Hart, Keith Hart, uh, Smith Hart. There's a bunch of them. They all, were, they all wrestled. They all, yeah, one guy's name was Smith. Oh, Smith okay. Hart. But going back to uh, Stu Hart, so he, you know, it was basically wrestling royalty in Canada. Yeah. And uh, he trained so many wrestlers in a place called the, the Hart Dungeon, which was the basement <laughs> of his house. It was this little place where they had mats. Well, he used to go down there and just like put these guys in holes and stretch them until they screamed. Oh. And uh, that was how he got broke into the business back in the day. And he trained like, you know, countless. If that was going on today, it would be, it, there'd be an investigation. There'd be an yeah, probably. The, the Hart House, actually the house they grew up in, actually is considered a Calgary heritage location. Not surprised. I mean, Brett the Hitman is probably the most famous of them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. He doesn't seem to be one of those guys that have any bad story about him. You know what I mean? Ooh. Like, oh, he does? Have you heard of the Montreal Screwjob? No. Okay. We're not getting too much into it. So basically, Vince McMahon and Bret Hart has some kind of a business file out to the point where oh. Bret Hart said he was going to leave and go to the other wrestling federation at the time, WCW. Okay. At the time, Bret Hart was the champion. They had to figure out how, before he left, how to get the championship off him. So he had a match come up with this other wrestler by the name of Shawn Michaels. And he didn't want to lose to Shawn Michaels because Shawn Michaels was a pretty arrogant guy and told him that basically he would never lose to him type of thing. Mm-hmm. So Bret Hart said, I'll lose the belt, but I'm not losing him. So they came up with this thing where McMahon said, okay, we're not going to lose the title to him. But behind closed doors, they actually set it up so that he would lose without Bret Hart agreeing to lose. Okay. So what happened was during the match, uh, Shawn Michaels put Bret Hart into the sharpshooter and the referee rang the bell before him actually submitting so he made it look like he quit and lost the belt but he actually didn't and Bret Hart you know takes his wrestling very seriously and he thought it was it was you know uh, such a disrespect or dishonor to his legacy and all that so he punched McMahon out and a big old <gasps> thing happened it was, it was a big deal right that was a dick move by McMahon it was, a, it was a dick move on both parts number one it was by him but it was also by Bret for refusing to lose the championship I mean that's that's part of the deal you gotta lose the belt and that story, to me, that's like that's not like you know a big controversy story. Like something like um, I keep bringing up the one fellow that murdered his wife and everything. Chris Benoit, yeah. who who is also from Alberta. <laughs> oh, is he? Okay, he is. Yes, he's from Edmonton. But also, uh, Owen Hart was another son of the Hart family, and he died tragically in the ring. Uh, they were doing this kind of stunt where they're loading him from the rafters. He was a wrestler. He was being his wrestler named the Blue Blazer. And he was doing like the superhero entrance where he was supposed to come down from the thing and he was flapping his wings. And uh, he was coming like on like a bungee cord type thing and he, he accidentally released a release on the on the harness and he fell like 100 feet or whatever it was and broke his neck and died. Oh, wow. It happened on, live on a pay-per-view. Oh, shit. Really? They weren't filming at the time. They were like doing a backstage interview, but like everyone live in the ring saw it. When he was falling down... Uh, one of the referees was there, and he was screaming at the referee to get out of the way so that uh, he would have landed on this guy if he wasn't screaming. So he actually theoretically saved this guy's life by telling him to get out of the way in time, right? So The ins and outs and the background and the and the bits and parts and creepy things of wrestling are fascinating. I don't know anything yeah. about it, but, like, that's pretty messed up. No, wrestling, you know, in the end, it is a pretty scummy business. And, I and, bet, uh, yeah. All that kind of stuff happens, but uh, very interesting and, and uh, 
I always enjoy talking about it, but I've already probably talked about it way too long in this episode. So. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move on. When I was first researching about Alberta, my first inclination was to do urban legends specific to that province. And one of them, of course, the West Edmonton Mall is the largest mall in North America. It has a lake in it. It has uh, a water park. It has roller coasters. I mean, it has stores too. It is a shopping mall. One of the urban legends around the mall is what's underneath it. So some people think that there's like a huge bomb shelter built under there. And okay. after 9-11, it was fortified so that elite residents of Edmonton would be able to go under the mall to have a bomb shelter. So that's kind of like Stranger Things, wasn't it? When this episode of Stranger Things, when the Russians had the thing under the mall? Oh, I don't remember that. Maybe that's where they got the idea, though. You didn't watch Stranger Things? Oh, yes. Stra- oh, my God. You know what I thought you were talking about for a sec? Perfect strangers. Valky <laughs> <laughs> had one down there. I thought you. Was, I, I don't know why I thought that when you said it. Yes, that's right. Stranger Things did have a whole thing yeah. under their mall. Yeah, Valky Batakamu said a uh, bomb shelter for Nepos. Was that was that the town that the country was from? Nepos, yeah. <laughs> we do the dance of joy. What a dumb show that was. It really was. Did have a lasting impression on me, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it was part of the Friday night. Uh, there was that. There was that fucking show with the missus was a robot child and she always wore a red dress. <laughs> My small one there, was it? Yeah. She lift up the couch, vacuum yeah. underneath. Um, what else was on that yeah. that cycle at that time? <laughs> the robot. I, I, can't, I never talked about that show forever. <laughs> uh, in the robot show one time, remember, buddy, they had a son, like a human son, yeah. and then the robot daughter. And one time the human son was uh, one of the like older kids in the neighborhood got him to <laughs> chew tobacco. Yes, because <laughs> it was not as bad as smoking. It hurts a lot, son. I specifically remember that one. <laughs> the music going out when he's chewing back, spitting it out while his father's giving him shit. Anyway, TGIF, Marori. Yeah, West Edmonton Mall, okay. Yeah, so apparently there's a bomb shelter under there. Anything else? No, I think we should just jump right on in here now. Which episode was I talking about? I don't remember which one it was. Oh, yes, it was Prince Edward Island, where I was talking about where I could pinpoint where my interest in the supernatural was. The teacher told the story about the death token. But there's some other kind of classic supernatural type of things that all followed after that. And one of them to me was dreams and the meanings of dreams. Yep. Today, I don't think dreams mean anything. You don't think so? I mean, I have a lot of dreams about water, like I'm in water or underwater or something like that. And I think that represents being stressed out about something or other. But I don't think I'm going to have a dream and predict the future, like that kind of stuff. No, I I don't, I don't put that kind of stuff, but I have this dream all the time. We discussed this before, but I had this dream, two dreams I have a lot. Mm -hmm. One is it'll be like the last day of class and it'll be a big exam coming up. I didn't study for it. I'm all Mm -hmm. freaked out and, and, uh, or be like, you know, this is the first day of class. And what are you talking about? This is the final exam. And I didn't Mm -hmm. buy the book. That, that type of thing, or there's an exam and you're not ready for it. I mean, I have that dream all the fucking time. Sorry, mom. <laughs> yeah, you said you were not going to swear as much. I did, yes. Um, <laughs> and another dream I have all I have a lot. I don't know why. I'd be like, just say I'll have to call somebody on the phone. And mm. I keep misdialing the number. And I keep 10, 12 times every single time wow, I misdial that's it. that's weird. And I get angry and I hang up and I try to do it again. And every time I mess it up and, and it, it, yeah. oh yeah, I, I have that dream a lot too. I don't know why. I don't know what it means. Another one I actually have had a lot of time. I haven't had it in a while, but I've had it. 
I used to have it all the time. Like, we playing basketball or something. But every time I look up, everything's cloudy and I can't see anything. Cloudy, like cataracty, or cloudy, like there's clouds in the sky. It's just like there's nothing up there. Like I look up, I can't see anything. I look down, I can't. I'm trying to play a sport or something. I just can't navigate my way through because I can't see anything. It just looks like white. I think that means you need to get progressive lenses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, they're the best. I'm at the age now where I got to do the dad, which was our father used to love crossword puzzles. He he could do the hardest crossword puzzle in five minutes. But when he was doing it, he always had to take his glasses off because he couldn't read any close up. <laughs> I'm at that stage in my life now where I got to start taking my glasses off to read something. He liked crossword puzzles so much, he's literally buried with a crossword puzzle book and a pan. Yeah. Yeah. So he could scruzzle the do from, from beyond. <laughs> That's right. That's interesting. So you don't think they mean anything, though, those dreams? No, I don't think so. Yeah, so dreams and dream interpretations, like all that kind of stuff, I still find it very interesting. I'm going to tell a story uh, that happened in Alberta that has a lot to do with dreams and do they come true. If trashy daytime television, you know, from back in the 80s, remember you'd be off sick from school and you'd watch like Sally, Jesse, Raphael and Donahue oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. If those shows taught Geraldo. us, Geraldo, uh, if those shows taught us anything is that people who claim to have ESP, they're always wanting to be solving murders. Usually, though, these people that are trying to like insert themselves into these kinds of stories are looking at like sensationalized headlines like John Benet Ramsey or... Elizabeth Smart, you know, something like that. And yep. normally what they say is their body is by some water or it's near a tree or like something seriously vague. Like you're not telling me anything at all, right? But what if you, a person who has never had any claim to second sight or any supernatural abilities at all, had a dream that was so detailed and seemed so real that you were compelled to act on it? Would you ever... Is there a context to it? Like there was something in the news and I dreamt about it so vividly that I needed to speak to the police about it? Or is this something in, uh, out of nowhere, this, I had this vision that I had to see through? Well, let me give you an example. Okay. If you had a dream in which you saw your brother, who okay. as far as you knew, was safe in another country, <laughs> yeah. savagely murdered and then callously discarded in your dream, would you act on that? I would reach out to my brother to make sure that they didn't just say, yo, what's up? It would be pretty unsettling, right? It would, absolutely, yeah. Uh, it happened to me one time when I was in high school. One of my friends had a dream that I was dead. Okay. And it was so vivid that she was compelled to call me at like one o'clock in the morning. And I was very angry that she woke me up. <laughs> like, I am not dead. <laughs> You'll be dead. Didn't you have a dream that you, that you murdered me? And I said, don't worry, it's 1985. I had a dream that I murdered both you and our other brother yeah without any feeling at all <laughs> good ted bundy style like i nice. did not care at all and i don't remember if it was you or him that came back to life and said not to worry because it was 1986 but if you had a dream like that it would be pretty unsettling yes it would well if that happened to you and you were in england around the turn of the 20th century and your dream murked brother was thousands of miles away in western canada You'd probably go down to the pub and tell your buddies. It would be a mm -hmm. good laugh. They'd razz you for being weirded out about the dream, and you'd have a laugh over a pint. Now, what if you found out shortly after that the events in your dream were actually true? What, even further, what if your dream, that dream, helped to convict the murderer? This is what happened to an ordinary man named George Hayward of North Mudlam, Sussex, England in 1904. This is such a weird story. American Charlie King and Englishman Edward Hayward 
which is a bizarre rhyming name. Mm -hmm. uh, they forged this partnership in the Canadian Wild West sometime in the early 1900s. I don't know exactly when. Um, I think some of the articles I had read said that they sort of partnered up around 1902. Okay. They were pretty good buddies. Like a lot of the people before them, they were looking to strike it rich. So they were going to go up north. They're going to go prospecting for gold, looking for minerals, who knows what else. Spend a couple of years, get to the Yukon. <laughs> but they went through Alberta, so I don't know. I guess the U well, the Yukon was over at this time. So maybe they were like, you know what? There's shit over in Yukon and Alaska and everything. Let's see if there's anything in northern Alberta. So they decided they were going to pool the resources together. It's probably safer to be in pairs anyway. So in August of 1904, the pair of them left Edmonton and they had all the normal supplies. They had horses and traps for hunting, supplies, food, and uh, Hayward had his trusty yellow dog with him. Before I go on with this, no dog is hurt in this story. <laughs> right, that's the first thing I was thinking. If you mentioned the dog. <laughs> yeah, I was putting the story together. I'm like, I would not be able to hear anything else until I knew the dog was okay, <laughs> even yeah. though this is a story about a murder uh, of a human being. But yeah, the, the dog is not harmed in this story. So the journey takes them through the Swan Hills Trail to the Sucker Creek Indian Reserve, which they reached in September of 1904. So it takes them about a month or so to get up there. Along the way, there's prospectors just floating around everywhere. So they met a whole bunch of different people. Just The prospecting trade was a big deal. There's nothing as big as prospecting since the beavers. Oh, I guess, yeah. It went from the beavers to the prospecting, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what's on to go in Canadian history. And people are just wandering all over the place looking for stuff. It's like Minecraft, like with a pick <laughs> going around digging. Yes, that's pretty much what they were doing. Yeah. So but they met a whole bunch of people along the way. Later, these people would be called witnesses. Uh, so when they reached the reserve, they figured it was a good time for them to set up camp for a little bit. And again, they met a whole bunch of different people. People were camping there all the time. There are just a couple of more white dudes passing through on the way to wherever the people of the reserve saw this 100 times. But things change either late on September 17th or early September 18th. Not sure uh, it was before or after midnight, when a woman who was living in the reserve, we don't know her name or nobody bothered to write it down, poor thing, but this woman heard gunshots from the direction of the King Hayward camp. People were hunters back then, so, you know, gunshots were not that uncommon, but she thought it was really strange to hear it at that hour of the night. Like, no one should be shooting off guns at uh, midnight. In any case, on September 18th, that was the third day of their camp, the Englishman Hayward was nowhere to be found, and the American king had left the camp saying, oh, Hayward, he decided to go on his own way and he's gone to Sturgeon Lake. We decided to split ways. All right, fine. Okay. Who cares? They come and go all the time. Nobody really thought much about it. The camp was now empty. And some of the First Nations women decided to go and check out the campsite. Uh, this is something apparently that was very common because a lot of times these prospectors that were passing through would leave a lot of useful items behind. So they were going to see if there was anything there uh, that they could use. They did not find any useful items. On the contrary, they found a very disturbing scene. First off, the women thought the campsite was weird because the fire, you know, their campfire that they had set up looked like it was way too big for just two men, like not a giant party, on a relatively mild night. There was no reason to have such a big fire. But, you know, okay. maybe the fire went out of control. Who knows, right? That was not the case. So one of the women looked up in the branches that were sort of above the fire, which is weird because why wouldn't they have the fire in like an open space? 
but whatever. Yep. Uh, and she saw what she described to be globs of fat clinging to the branches. So mm. immediately she knew what was going on. Some sort of flesh had been burnt in this fire. Yep. Would that smell like Probably smell chicken? like bacon. Bacon. <laughs> this way. It smelled like long pork. I don't know. I mean, people were cooking and camps were campsites wherever. Like, I don't think it was like a distinct smell. Okay. It was terrible. This story is a lot worse than I thought. So they knew that something was burnt in this fire. And the fire, like I said, the fire space was really big. So they knew it was something big. Again, there's only two guys. Why are you cooking a moose? Like, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. So they went to their chief, um, who was a man named Mustus, to tell him their concerns. Like, they, it didn't look good to them. Mustus decided he was going to go have a look-see for himself. And surely he did. And he said, yep, that's a big-ass fire. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. Mm. And definitely some kind of animal is burnt there. Mustus, he figured the best thing for him to do at this point was to go to the Mounties to, you know, let them come and check it out. So off he goes to the nearest detachment of the Northwest Mounted Police. Later, they become the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And he tells a guy in charge, a guy by the name of Sergeant Christian Anderson, all of his suspicions. Sergeant Anderson is a product of his time. He doesn't really believe Chief Moustoos. He thinks the Native Canadians are a little bit too superstitious and probably nothing happened. It might be overreacting. Yeah. He, he wasn't into it. But, you know, later on, there's this huge element of the supernatural that have nothing to do with the Native people. Chief Mustus was not going to give up. He's like, something is definitely going on. And he was really, really persistent. So Sergeant Anderson agreed to finally, you know, go along with him and see what's going on. So, so far, the story is pretty logical. Two strangers show up in the camp. Gunshots are heard. One buddy says, my partner decided to go a different way. He disappears. Local people discover evidence of probably a murder. The cops are notified and an investigation ensues. So this is where we are. Sergeant Anderson arrived at the camp and agreed that the place where the fire was did seem a little bit too big for a normal campsite. He did what any law enforcement guy at the time would do. He shoved his bare hands into the ashes and rooted around. <laughs> Jeez. So clearly this is like way before modern forensics. He had not seen CSI for sure. But he found in the ashes a bunch of charred bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, CSI would be semen stains everywhere. <laughs> they made a black light. <laughs> yeah. He finds these charred bones, but he doesn't know if they're animal bones or, or why. Like, yep. that would be the most likely conclusion, right? It's campfire and you burn some stuff up into it. But he decided, since he was there anyway, he'd poke around a little bit more and, and see what he can find. That was a pretty good idea because he also discovered some charred flesh, which appeared to him to be a heart, a liver, and some lung tissue. <laughs> why that shit mm -hmm. didn't burn up into fire and the bones yeah. are charred, I don't know. And then also in the campsite, there was some straw, probably for bedding that was laying around. And it looked like it was spattered with both blood and uh, brain matter. Obviously, mm. something went down here. <laughs> something heinous has occurred. So based yeah. on this information that he gathered from the people living on the reserve and the other prospectors in the area, Sergeant Anderson learned that uh, one of the men, Charlie King, was staying at the home of some local guy. And the other guy, Edward Hayward, nobody had seen him since you know the second day with these facts plus all the bits and pieces that seem to be human body parts uh and the report of gunshots sergeant anderson was able to deduce that king probably murdered hayward so he started this relentless investigation he went all over alberta all over british columbia it was like a crazy investigation first anderson went to the home where king was known to be staying 
just to question him, you know, what's up with your buddy there, Hayward? No one has seen him. And King's story was all over the place. First, he said he didn't know Hayward at all. And then he said, oh, yeah, I know him, but his name is Lehman, not Hayward. And I just met him kind of briefly on my travels. None of that matched what any of the witness had said so far. But what did match, kind of, is King said Lehman, a.k.a. Hayward, went off to Sturgeon Lake. And that was the end of their relationship. So at this point, Anderson doesn't really have enough evidence to prove that King did anything. But he's, yep. it's a pretty strong suspicion. So he sends a couple of constables to go to Sturgeon Lake to look for any sign of Hayward. Spoiler alert, they didn't find anything. Nobody saw him. Nobody heard of him. Just there was no trace of him ever going to that place. So King was telling a pretty unconvincing story. And he ended up being arrested based on what they knew so far and taken to jail in Edmonton. Anderson goes back to the scene of the crime after King goes to jail and pokes around a little bit more. This time he gets a window screen and he sifts through all the ashes that are left in the fire. Here, again, he finds more charred bones plus a waistcoat buckle. So unless there's some fancy dressed up moose in the area, this is definitely a human being. He enlists the help of some of the Cree men to search a a nearby slough where they find a whole bunch of stuff, including... Um, Hayward's sterling silver wallet. I mean, it was well known to be his. Another officer named Constable Lowe followed the clues to an Edmonton hotel. And here he finds Edward Hayward's trunk in a basement. And in those items, he finds a letter from George Haywood. That's the English dreamer back home, yep. back across the pond. So this is where they find how George and Edward are related. So they find we have a potential victim and here's his family And they decide they're going to reach out to this guy over in England to see, like, do you know where your brother is? (laughs) I mean, they found a heart and a lung and bones and everything, but they don't have a body per se. Yeah, exactly. They can't say who it is for sure. Not yet. So they send a letter to to Edward over in England to, to find out if he's heard from his brother. So while the officers are sifting through the ashes and digging through the trunks to figure out what happened at the campsite, in September of 1904, an Englishman strolls into the Edmonton office of Inspector Darcy Strickland. My name is George Hayward, says the travel-worn man. Do you believe in dreams? That's his opening. Gee. Inspector Strickland is like, mm, no, but he's a little bit... Get it. <laughs> right? He's intrigued, though. Like, that, if someone opened up a conversation to me like that, I'd be like, no, but why? <laughs> it's a sol- solid opener. It's a solid opener, for sure. So he went on to tell Inspector Strickland that he had a dream that his brother Edward was shot to death in a piney campsite by his travel companion, a man that he, George, had never met. So he just, he knows he was murdered by somebody. He went on to say that in the dream, not only was his brother murdered, but the guy who murdered him tried to get rid of his body by burning it on a campfire. So far, this is all just a story. And at this point, you're probably thinking... But he got a letter from the Mounties asking where his brother is. So he probably didn't think anything good was going on, (laughs) right? Like, you're not going to get a letter out of nowhere asking where your brother is if nothing suspicious happening. Because us cops want to give him a a trophy. That's right. You could even probably think, okay, so he got this letter. He knows something is up. Maybe he even went to the Sucker Creek Reserve and got some information from the local people. And maybe he put it all together and was like this grandiose entry into the into the cop shop there. But at this point in the conversation between George Hayward and Inspector Strickland, Hayward reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a clipping from an English newspaper, which is all about how a local man, himself, George, dreamt that his brother all the way over in Canada was murdered. 
And this article is printed the day after the actual murder had happened. So there's no way the letter from the Mounties could have ever reached Hayward. Okay. Again, is it believable that a newspaper would print such a story? (laughs) It's not really a newsworthy story, right? I mean, people have weird dreams all the time. We talked about some at the beginning of this conversation. But... George is from a very tiny village. He's not from London. He's in a very, very small place over in England. And small town papers often print really local sort of non-news-like story. I can remember a story in our local paper, like when we were kids. The Compass? The Compass, yeah. That was about a local couple whose car was struck by lightning on the way to a Clancy Brothers concert. (laughs) But since there was no obvious damage to the car, the couple decided, well, we bought our tickets. We may as well go on. So at this point, Inspector Strickland is pretty weirded out. Like he's got this printout here, right, about this this guy's story. Or maybe he's just really curious about the whole dream thing. Maybe, Maybe he's like me as a teenager. So he takes George to Fort Saskatchewan. This is actually in Alberta. (laughs) I had to like look it up a couple of times. Fort Saskatchewan is a jail in Alberta. So he wanted to see if George would be able to pick out this guy from his dream of all the prisoners they had. (laughs) So a line of men from the penitentiary are paraded out. What do you think? Do you think George knew him or they all look the same or what? I'd say I picked him out based on the story. Yep. Picked him out right away. Charlie King's pretrial hearing for the murder of his prospecting partner started in Edmonton in February 20th of 1905. The brother of the victim, the unintentional clairvoyant here, was a witness, but he didn't testify about the dream. He just was used to identify some of his brother's belongings that were found on King and to show that he had a letter from his brother saying, I met up with this American Charlie King and we're going prospecting up in northern Alberta. This and all the other evidence that was presented at the pretrial was sufficient for the judge to, to order a trial. There was actually two trials because the first one, there was some legal technicality. I I do not know what it was, but there was two trials and King was found guilty and sentenced to hang for his crime. Mm. On September 30th, 1905, only 29 days after Alberta became Canada's eighth province, Charles King became the first criminal to be executed in that province. So how close was the actual murder to George Hayward's dream? In February 24th, 1905, In an interview with the Edmonton Bulletin, George said that it was pretty close. King wasn't as tall in real life as he appeared in the dream. (laughs) He was a pretty chill guy. It's a pretty pretty minute (laughs) detail to to bring up. (laughs) But uh, when I read that, I'm like, it's kind of like when you see people on TV and then you see them in real life. And you're like, that person is very short. (laughs) Yeah. That that was the uh, 1905 version of that. I mean, if you had a dream that your brother was murdered, that would be your comment. Like, how how British is this guy? <laughs> yeah, but the thing that gets me is like he traveled all the way from England to Alberta based on a dream. I mean, I'm sure in 1905 it's, it's not an easy trip to make. I mean, today yeah, you can fly there and yeah. So that's a part of the story that didn't match up together. So the the Mounties paid for him to go to Canada to be a witness in the trial. So what the fuzzy part is did he make up the story about the dream after he was told to come about the murder Uh but then he had that newspaper clipping from before he even got that letter so like he didn't come on his own dime he came to be a witness at the at the trial oh okay that makes a bit more sense yeah yeah 
So after the execution of Charlie King, 57 more people had their death sentence carried out in the province of Alberta before Canada abolished it in 1963. But actually, only for civilians. It, the death penalty for military wasn't actually abolished in Canada until 1999. Is that right? Yeah. For civilians, the only method of execution was hanging. Even in the 60s? Yeah. Wow. And uh, for military, it was firing squad. Yeah, firing squad, yeah. But I think King's case was the only one where the dream played a role in the conviction of the yeah. hanged person. Edward Hayward's yellow dog, remember him? Yeah. So at first, King tried to keep him for himself. As we learned in the Yukon episode, dogs were like a high commodity for prospectors. That's right. People were taking them left, right, and center. But no matter what King tried to do, the dog would not stay with him. Oh, really? Yeah, the dog would not stay with him. And this was another thing that, you know, was people were talking about around this case. The dog wouldn't stay with this guy. Obviously, he did it because the dog knows what's up. Dog knows. So eventually he traded the dog for some fish. <laughs> Goldfish? <laughs> I know. I read that first. I'm like, wait, for pets? or Oh, and like, oh for food, of course. <laughs> yeah, he, he put a bunch of goldfish bowls in his dog sled and went on. I imagine that the dog was traded for some fish, and then he lived a long and happy life with his new masters. So that's a story. Any questions? It's kind of a... No, my biggest question you already answered was, I find it very difficult to believe that somebody based on a dream would travel from England to Alberta. you already answered that one saying that the Mounties did foot the bill for that. Yes. And he wasn't a man of means or anything. Like he was a sailor from a small yeah. place in England. Yeah. So. But to me, it was just, it seemed so likely that he could have just made up the story. Well, he did pick Buddy out right away. So that was, that was pretty compelling. Well, and the thing to me that was even more outstanding was that there was a newspaper article about, oh, this guy dreamt that his brother was murdered in Canada. And then he got a letter to say, oh, by the way, can you come over and be a witness in a trial? So a dream kind of helped solve a murder, sort of. I mean, I don't know if any... Yeah, no, that's... I don't know if any of the uh, dream parts were part of the trial itself, but certainly uh, probably scared the crap out of poor Inspector Strickland. Yeah, it certainly makes it uh, a more weird situation, which is good for us. <laughs> or some weird situation. You're so selfish. That's, that's all that really matters when you think about it. Yep, so... What I'm going to talk about it's not about it's not about a dream to solve the murder. Unfortunately, it's going to be it's more about <laughs> unfortunately uh, it's more so about a specific area in Banff National Park about Lake Minnewanka. It sounds like a made up place for a Disney movie. A cross between Minnesota and Willy Wonka, is it? Yes, <laughs> Minnewanka. But what it actually is is a glacial lake uh, located in Banff National Park. Mm-hmm. Areas around the lake have been uh, inhabited by First Nations peoples for 10,000 years. So mm -hmm. this has been an area of uh, prominence for the First Nation peoples for quite a while. Reason being, uh, it was rich in animal life. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of good hunting there. The lake was named after the person who discovered it. When it was discovered, he saw a fish that appeared to be as long as the lake itself. So right next to the lake, there's this huge mountain <laughs> peak. And he looked down and when he saw this lake, there was a fish the size of the whole lake. So the First Nation people uh, both feared and respected this lake as they thought of it as the lake of the evil water spirit. They thought of it as a sacred place and you know, because the fish are so big there, it could be evil spirited. <laughs> if you were to choose between swimming in a lake and swimming in the ocean, where are you going? Depends on where the ocean is. If the ocean's off Newfoundland, <laughs> probably going with the lake. For sure. Or if it's off Florida, probably going to the ocean. I think I would too. I even though like I know there's probably sharks floating around in there. 
Yeah. Not as many sharks in a lake. <laughs> I've swam much more in the ocean than, than in lakes in my life. Yeah. I mean, I only learned how to swim. I think you know this. I only learned how to swim when I was in my 30s, so. Yeah, I know. If you haven't learned to swim and take this from somebody who couldn't swim for a long time, the key is learning how to float on your back. And the key to learning to float on, on your back is to make sure your ears get submerged in water. Once you figure that out, the rest is easy. And that's how I figured out how to swim. Is that true? Or did somebody teach you that when you were doing lessons? That's my opinion. Because I remember oh, yeah? I was always keep my head up. I never put my head in the water enough. And okay. I'd always sink. But once you, once you relax, put your, put your ears, your ears get underneath the water, uh, you'll float and you'll be good. Going back to this, you know, the place was feared and respected by First Nations peoples that whenever people traveled in the neighborhood of the lake, they always heard voices or spirits. You couldn't see what's making the sounds, but you can always hear them. Mm-hmm. That would obviously be a very creepy situation. Mm-hmm. Area around this lake has been known to several interesting creatures associated with it. And uh, we'll talk about a couple. The first one, Herman the Merman. <laughs> Is he a monster mermaid? <laughs> God, I hope so. It is a monster mermaid. It's actually... Uh, it's a merman, and not like a merby that you see on a calendar. Okay. The first creature was discovered by the father of Enoch Batiste. He's a member of the Stony Nakoda First Nation that lived in the area. So he's considered the merman of Miniwankin. And this merman is actually on display in a mummified form at the Banff Indian <gasps> Training Shop. I've seen a picture of that thing. Yes, you've seen it? Yeah, it almost looks like the Fiji mermaid type style. And that... That actually works into the story a little bit. Okay. All right. Yes, I think I have seen a picture of that ugly friggin' thing. Go ahead. It looks like super fake, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but according to lore of this creature, I said that one time uh, the people of Enoch Baptiste were camping near the lake and his dad heard a drumming. The noise seemed to be coming from the water. He could also hear voices down on the lake. So he looked at near the center of the lake and he saw a strange creature rise out. Half man, half fish. The Aquaman. No, it wasn't Aquaman. <laughs> it's Jason Momoa. And he was like, damn, yeah. he's hot. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> Jason Momoa, lover of Newfoundland, by the way. So we always love him. So this fish man, when he got up out of water, he kind of blew water towards the shore. And like a wave came from it and uh-huh. went back down. Other people in the camp also saw this creature. So everybody who was there who set this camp up by the thing got so frightened. They broke camp, packed everything up, never went back again. No more camping here. The fish man's going to get us. Did you put a year on this story or? No, but this is ancient uh, First Nations origin story. Okay. So they said this lake was never fished or canoed again until the white man or the non-First Nation people visited the area. So between this sighting and until European settlers or, or whatever came to Banff, they never canoed, fished this lake again. Okay. So that's their origin story. There's another origin story. I can't get the picture out of my head now that it's a Herman Munster merman. <laughs> Herman <laughs> Merman. But anyway. Herman the Merman. The next origin story is there's a mountain near the lake, and of the lake itself considered to be holy locations. And indigenous people were afraid of the area, but also respective of it, like I said before. And they made up the story of the supernatural creature just to kind of keep people away from the sacred area. Okay, that's the normal folklore story, though, you know. Exactly. So I said, mm-hmm. what kind of creature is it? Well, it's a half man, half fish. Looks like Jason Momoa. No, I didn't say that part, but... <laughs> and all the women flock to the... That's right. <laughs> yeah, origin story number three for Herman the Merman. Norman Luxton, he's the original owner of the Banff Indian Trading Shop. Uh, he traveled from Banff to Vancouver. In 1901, he met a man by the name of John Vass, and he had a good idea. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a century-old canoe and row it around the world. Okay. <laughs> what? That's a, that's a brilliant idea, he said. 
So he said, I'm going to go with you because that's such a great idea. So they traveled 10,000 miles in this canoe in five months. Uh, their boat struck a reef in Fiji. They got that far in a canoe? Apparently so. So they obviously stayed very close to the shore. and They must have anyway. But Fiji is in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, there's not much shore there when you get from, from <laughs> Vancouver to there. Uh, and again, a lot of it, I think this story was made up so that they get this mummified fish man into the, into the training shop so people come in, look at it, and buy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it's more of a more of a store marketing. We should take <laughs> tips from this guy to how to increase the uh, listenership of some weird podcast. So basically, like I said, the, their boat finally got to Fiji, got wrecked, they got hurt. Uh, Norman returned to Banff, and he opened the training coast. He claimed he had purchased this thing in an area called Java, which is close to Fiji, uh, just to get people to the store, like I just said. He was the P.T. Barnum of Banff. Yeah, there you go. So today, the merman is known as Herman the Merman, like we've discussed. And he has, or used to have, a Twitter account, BTP Merman, but it looks like it's defunct. I tried to look it up, and it's not. I was hoping to find some good tweets of it. But basically, it used to have a tweet, something like, Hi, I'm a a merman, half fish, half man. I live in Minnewanka Lake, and I shop at the Indian Trading Post, right? So So that's Herman the Merman. Two very different origin stories. Yeah. And we'll uh, we'll tweet out his picture. It looks uh, as fake as you think it'll look, to be quite yes. honest with you. It looks like a capelin with four legs. Yes, <laughs> it's pretty much it. <laughs> and a nice flowing locks. I'm looking up Herman the Merman, and apparently there's a song by the loons called Herman the Merman. Okay. <laughs> Herman the Merman, gosh, your gills give me thrills. Herman the Merman. Apparently she wants to bang a fish man. <laughs> well, if you go to Minnewak and Lake, you might be able to have your luck. So the second creature I'm going to talk about is the Lake Minnewankan Wild Man. He is a cryptic Bigfoot type figure. First spotted in the area in 1895. Several people were out fishing and came across a gigantic footprints, the estimated length of about 19 inches. Okay. How much is a regular footprint? I don't know. Well, my foot's 12 inches. Your foot's a foot? Yeah. So 19 is not super. I guess it is fairly big, though. It's almost two feet. Footprints of this area were found again in 1896 along the shore. Uh, people decided to follow them. They, walked, they led them to a hole in the frozen lake. Uh, the set left the hole and then went onto the woods. So it didn't like it, it broke the ice, but it didn't fall right through. And it was like, shallow enough where he could have got himself out. So at this point, they stopped following. They said, you know what? This guy can get himself out of a hole in the lake. They're not going to follow him anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, late spring 96, a trapper was checking his traps when he saw a huge creature in the distance. The creature was walking, ducked under a tree branch, and went on his merry way. So once he was out of sight, the trapper went out to uh, see where it was. And the tree branch was well over seven feet in the air when he had to duck to get under it. So again, we're looking mm-hmm. at something very tall. Late summer of 1896, two prospectors, and again, people love prospecting, which was the the way late 1800s they thought they spotted a great bear so they grabbed their guns and shot at it only to see it uh stand on its two legs shriek in pain and run off they could hear it screaming uh so when they saw it and you can tell it wasn't a bear they just said you know what the hell with this and they got out of dodge mm-hmm. so again early winter 1897 the creatures found its way to a settlement all the dogs started barking people started coming out with rifles what's everyone's going right the guns is the first thing for all these people gung high people they started shooting, and, and the thing took off. Wasn't seen again until the fall of 1898. I guess uh, he figured with all this gunfire, the place isn't safe. 
<laughs> right? He gets getting shot at every couple of weeks. This time a man uh, was fishing and he saw him, you know, 50, 40, 50 yards away. Thing growled at the man, so he responded by, guess what? Shoot. Grabbing his rifle and shoot. Yeah. Fishing with your rifle. So spots of blood were actually found in the tree, suggesting it was hit. Uh-huh. Early of winter in 1898, two wolfhounds were found dead outside a small settlement. 19-inch footprints found in the area. It looked like the, you know, he ate these wolfhounds. Another time, uh, uh, he ate the them, same, but they were found there. You mean he killed they're them? Found dead, found dead, or killed? Yeah, I guess. Okay. Uh, later on, that there was another sighting where there was like a bunch of fish bones around giant footprints, and make you think like he caught some fish and ate them. Uh, in spring of 1899, it was spotted near a cabin and appeared to be stalking two horses for prey. Uh, the men who owned the horses shot the creature, and they think they hit it at least three times. But this thing up, is basically it, Swiss cheese at this point. Yeah, exactly. It hit the ground and got up and ran away. So in the summer, of, uh, in the winter of 1899, a man on horseback spotted the creature, and he said it had a noticeable limp, probably from getting <laughs> shot so many times. Yep. As the guy was watching him, it disappeared into the tree line, and it's never been seen again. So he was like, fuck this place. I'm sick of getting shot. <laughs> um, that was it? The last time was 1899? Yeah, it's been seen since, yeah. Okay, so nobody thinks it was a Bigfoot. They think it was just. A, a I, I think it's considered a Bigfoot, but they called it the the Lake okay. Minnewauk and Wild Man. Okay, and how bad are the sh- are these guys at shooting? Are they all stormtroopers? It's pretty much yeah. You figure you have them taken down by now. You figure all these frontier people would be like accurate hunters and stuff. Yeah, but apparently not. Or maybe the Wild Man invented Kevlar, and that <laughs> right. only one time someone got him in the foot, and that's why he limps. But. Probably. And one other interesting story about this town is there's an underwater ghost town in the uh, area. There used to be a town in Lake Minnewanka known as Minnewanka Landing, a place where people would go from out of the city just to kind of hang out in the, in the country, right? Mm-hmm. It's close to Calgary. So in 1941, there was a big demand for electricity in Calgary. Uh, the town was booming. Mm-hmm. So as a way to create the electricity, they built a dam out of the Lake Minnewanka uh, area. So the dam, when it was built, it raised the reservoirs 98 feet and basically engulfed everything in its wake. So this town that was there because of the the, the dam basically went underwater. No engineers? or <laughs> Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess in the 40s. Uh, I, I don't know if it, was, it had to be done quickly because of the war. I, I don't know. Okay. But uh, poorly designed, obviously. And this was a learning moment for the... <laughs> for for the, the town that was once Minnewanka Lankin, which is now underneath the water. So Did people get killed? I don't know if anybody got killed, but uh, basically everything got destroyed. Okay. Um, but today, everything's down there probably perfectly preserved, and divers can go down there with get your scuba gear. It's 18 meters down, and the town is almost perfectly preserved. There's cottages down there. The window's still intact. There's a hotel. Everything like that. So 8,000 people, roughly, do this dive every year, and it's considered one of the, wow. the holy grails of diving in the world. 18 meters doesn't seem that far down. Like I don't dive at all, but that seems like... Well, three feet a meter. 60, 70 feet. But if you were like a diver, that's not excessive, is no, it? No, I don't think so, no. but uh, I have no idea. I don't know what I'm talking about. But to your point, yeah, they couldn't have been properly engineered. I'm sure they could have saved the town, but yeah, I guess the, the, the electricity in Calgary is more important than this uh, place. But now it's a tourist attraction for divers. And it all worked out in the end. Exactly. And that's pretty much the lake. All right, cool. That's underwater city That's or town. That's pretty cool. That one doesn't sound like it could be... You got almost snorkel to that. It was that, it's that close to the surface. 
Well, if it's a hotel, like, so you said 18 meters, is that like where you hit the first roof or is that like the bottom of the lake? You know uh, what I mean? It said, it said 18 meters down, you can see the stuff. So I don't know if that means it's the bottom of the lake or. Uh, maybe you have to go down 18 meters before you start seeing it then, yeah, which would probably be pretty dark. I don't know. One of it's a hotel. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that could be several store I mean, in 1940s. I don't know how big the hotel would be. So, but. It might be more like a two story, like a motel type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's our episode about Alberta. We hope you enjoyed it. You know, we had a uh, a dream that solved the murder. We had a lake that's sacred to some people that uh, had weird creatures around it and a town that's now underwater that scuba divers can oogle at. We found Barry's new favorite song. Yes, we did. <laughs> I got to talk a little bit more about wrestling than I normally do, which is always great. And I, I must say with the wrestling, this is probably the only time that I've known yeah. the wrestlers and not been surprised because I actually knew Bret Hart was from Calgary. I could have spoken about uh, Lance Storm was also from Alberta. Uh, Chris Benoit, who we, we talked about, was from Alberta as well. So there, there are several ones. Teddy Hart, Natalia Neidhart, which I'm sure are wrestlers you never heard of. but Nope. See, now you're going to be showing me up and not knowing stuff. Alberta is another one of these provinces that go all the way from like the 49th to the 60th parallel right it stretches the whole gamut and again it's another one of those places where okay almost all of you live in a city but also outside of that you have like crazy mermaids in your lakes and we didn't really talk about too much about the rocky mountains and stuff but can you imagine like what kind of crazy shit is up in those mountains yeah i'm sure there must be a lot of stuff up there (laughs) yes but if uh if you're from alberta or if you're displaced newfoundlander from alberta it's probably where our most of our listeners are in the province um, and you have something else that you think we uh, we might have missed or something else you think is pretty cool folklore-wise or weird story-wise about your province, you can uh, let us know at the Twitter at SomeWeirdPod. The email, SomeWeirdPodcast at gmail.com. I had to think about that. You sounded so angry when you said it. Um, you can go to our website, uh, SomeWeirdPodcast.com. You can drop us a line there. You can look at our faces and... We never reveal our last names, of course, but you can probably figure it out. <laughs> For no, I mean, you can see I retweet so many stuff about the podcast when my last name is prominently displayed in my normal Twitter, so. <laughs> it's more of a running joke now than anything else. Yeah, exactly. You don't need your master's in uh, detective work to, to figure it out. You don't need to be CSI. No, you don't need the semen samples to figure that out. I don't have a personal Twitter. No? So if anybody ever looks at our Some Weird Podcast Twitter, you know it's uh, that's me doing that. Yeah, that's pretty much you, yeah. We should have done a CSI, like a, we should have did a Horatio thing. Like, the last name will never be revealed. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> nah, that, that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, boy. That was awesome. Anyway, that's Alberta. There's all kinds of weird shit going on up there. Weird stuff is everywhere. In every little nook and cranny, it's everywhere, so... Anyway, go to this weird shit. We'll find it and we'll talk about it. <laughs> All right. Alberta. Some weird by. Some weird. Big ass mall. Yeah. I've never been there. I wonder how many gaps yeah. are there or how many Starbucks there are. How many toilets do you think? Hmm. What's the electricity bill? <laughs>